Welcome, listener. I'm glad you're here. Take a seat. Next to the fire. Welcome to Obscura, where we shine a light on the dark. Listener, we're all familiar with New York City as a popular backdrop for heartwarming cinematic stories, where the kindness and love of humanity shared between strangers shines through. Serendipitous tales celebrating the bonds between people who otherwise wouldn't cross paths. In the oftentimes impersonal and mean streets of a city of 8.5 million people is a reminder that goodness can be found in the most unlikely of places. Films such as Desperately Seeking Susan, The Odd Couple, and Ghost are a nod to what draws and binds strangers together in a manner of unlikely circumstances in the city that doesn't sleep. One story that epitomizes this sentiment is the film adaptation of the well-known musical Annie. The story was originally based on the 1920s comic strip about a plucky 11-year-old orphan girl from the Lower East Side of Manhattan who was eventually adopted into a loving home on 5th Avenue by the bristly but benevolent millionaire Oliver Warbucks. Despite her tough start in life, Annie is a forever selfless optimist who always makes the best of bad situations. Grateful for whatever good fortune comes her way, she looks out for her other friends from the orphanage, especially the younger and more vulnerable girls. The reality of being adopted into a wealthy family in Manhattan, however, can be starkly different. On rare occasions... The best-intentioned couples who desire to provide a loving home with all the marital trappings and opportunities in the world to a child not as fortunate can have drastic and deadly consequences that no amount of privilege and affluence can guard against. Listener, as you'll hear, the events of today's story that unfolded just prior to Memorial Day weekend in 1997 show what happens when the path of strangers collide in such a way that not everyone necessarily emerges from a fateful chance encounter alive. Now, let's get on with it. Part 1. Let me take you down. Central Park is an iconic fixture of New York City. As the name implies, the rectangular park situated in the center of Manhattan Island is surrounded by a six-mile perimeter of trees, bordered by 59th Street up to 110th Street. 843 acres of parkland, rocky outcrops, wooded areas, and intertwined recreational roads encompasses 28 miles of pedestrian pathways, separated by 36 ornamental bridges, ball fields, eight bodies of water, and landmarks such as the Great Lawn, Literary Walk, Bethesda Fountain, the Boathouse, Conservatory Garden, Woolman Skating Rink, and the Central Park Zoo. These attractions cater to joggers, bike riders, recreational soccer, tourists taking horse and carriage rides, catch-and-release fishing, ice skaters, and those looking to relax on the sprawling lawns. The 20-acre lake is the largest body of water in the park, originally intended as a swamp, and now provides a picturesque setting for those looking to take to the water in a rowboat or gondola in the summer. The lake was the first part of the park, open to the public in the 1850s. 
and would play host to ice skaters for the next century of winners. On the Upper West Side of the park, between 71st and 74th streets, is one of eight designated quiet areas of the park known as Strawberry Fields. This lush 2.5-acre section of the park was established in 1985, five years after the murder of musician and peace activist John Lennon outside his home at the nearby Dakota Building on Central Park West. This peaceful area is named after the Beatles' song, Strawberry Fields Forever, which as you'll hear later in this story, has a degree of irony in this context. Strawberry Field was the name of a well-known girls' orphanage in Liverpool, in North England. As a young boy, John used to play with his friends in the woods behind the home, and the song he wrote about this fond childhood memory has a mesmerizing wistfulness to it. The Strawberry Field's living memorial guardian commemorates Lennon's dream for people to be able to gather in peace. A mosaic emblazoned with the word, Imagine, after the smash hit ballad Lennon wrote during his solo career, has become an icon of the park and a place of pilgrimage for many a Beatles and Lennon fan. Surrounded by American elms, Strawberry Fields is a communal space for people to gather and share a moment of quiet reflection in the middle of the busy city. It's a retreat to provide respite from the hustle and bustle of hectic Manhattan life. Part 2. Irish Michael McMurrow was born May 30, 1952 in the New York City borough of the Bronx, northwest of Manhattan. The third of four children, Michael grew up on the west side with his younger sister, Joan, older siblings Anne and Charles Jr., and their parents, Charles Sr. and Margaret. Michael became known by his friends as Irish, a reference to his parents who had emigrated to the United States from Ireland four years before he was born. Michael attended St. Gregory's Grammar School, close to the family home, As a kid, Michael loved spending time in Central Park playing softball, football, and basketball, and riding his bike. While Michael was still in elementary school, the McMorrow family moved to the University Heights area of the Bronx. Michael continued to pursue his love of sports, and was such a talented basketball player that he played junior varsity in high school. He indulged in his passion for rock and roll music by attending concerts and listening to his favorite bands for hours including the Rolling Stones, The Doors, and The Kinks. Like most teenagers, Michael began drinking alcohol with his friends, often in a park across from the Major Deegan Expressway, near the Hudson River. Michael was popular, outgoing, and down-to-earth. He loved discussing a range of topics with his friends, from sports to music to politics. While he didn't have any significant romantic relationships, he loved socializing with his friends. Michael's gregarious personality made him a natural when it came to dealing with people. Like his high school friends, his colleagues remembered him as a kind and gentle person, who was generous to a fault. Described by his family as happy-go-lucky, Michael loved to laugh and was known for his entertaining impersonations of film actors. 1982, after his father died, Michael moved in with his ailing mother, Margaret, at her apartment on 2nd Avenue, near 93rd Street, on the Upper East Side to do the shopping and help care for her. Michael continued to drink in bars and parks throughout his life. His drinking became problematic at times, and he was no stranger to Alcoholics Anonymous, but he always turned up to work at a job that he loved. Early 1997, he started working as a real estate broker in Manhattan, where he was responsible for renting apartments at 252 West 76th Street. He played baseball once a week in Riverside Park and enjoyed hanging out in Strawberry Fields. 
where he'd often bring beer and tell humorous tales at his companions roaring with laughter. Being a sociable, friendly person who enjoyed striking up conversations with others, Michael was drawn to the atmosphere of Central Park. He often sat there at night reading the newspaper under the soft glow of the lamplight. You never knew who you were going to meet, and the opportunity to forge new friendships and laugh with people in a relaxing atmosphere made him a park regular. Some nights Michael didn't return home, but this didn't concern his mother as sometimes her son stayed with friends, but those close to Michael were uneasy about him frequenting Central Park late at night and expressed their concerns. A neighbor once issued a friendly caution, stay out of the park at night, the demons come out. Michael's boss also warned him, it's another world out there after dark, if you keep doing this, you're gonna die. Michael appreciated the well-intentioned advice, but dismissed any such concerns. After all, nothing ever happened in the park. Part 3. Easy Street Angelo and Catherine Abdella lived on the 20th floor of the apartment building known as the Majestic on Manhattan's Upper West Side. Situated on 72nd Street, the complex was across the street from Dakota Building in the exclusive Central Park West area. Israeli-born Angelo was vice president of the Global Food Services Company, while his French-born wife, Catherine, had worked as a model prior to marrying Angelo. The couple was successful, and their apartment displayed the typical marital trappings of the wealthy, such as expensive artwork, rugs, and antiques. In 1982, the Abdellas adopted a baby girl three days after she was born, on May 18th. They called her Daphne. The Abdellas did not know the biological parent's identity, but from a young age, Daphne was told she was adopted as a baby. When it came to the material aspects of life, she didn't want for anything and had the best her parents could provide. Angelo and Catherine wanted their daughter to have every opportunity and money was no object. Daphne attended Columbia Grammar and Preparatory School, a private school on the Upper West Side, and took vacations other kids could only dream about. Photos of Daphne were prominent throughout the Abdella home. Daphne's bedroom had the ultimate entertainment setup that would have been the envy of many teenagers, with an extensive CD collection and her own TV computer, and state-of-the-art sound system. But, listener, no parents are perfect. Catherine Abdella was reported of having a long history of suffering from depression. Angela worked long hours, and Catherine had no family in America who could provide emotional and practical support with raising a young daughter. Despite Angela and Catherine's best intentions, it was said that Daphne lacked appropriate boundaries and guidance which prevented her from developing into a well-rounded and emotionally healthy young adult. Daphne became verbally and physically aggressive towards her parents, threatening and intimidating them, and even appearing to enjoy the conflict and tension she created as a result of her all-too-frequent tantrums. From a young age, Daphne was described as independent and rebellious, almost bordering on having problems with impulse control. It seemed Daphne hated her parents, when all they had done was try their best to give her a life and opportunities she otherwise wouldn't have had. When Daphne was 8 years old, she joined the Westside Marlins swim team at the West 63rd Street YMCA. Her teammates noticed she never smiled or laughed, and found her strange. The parents of the other kids on the team agreed that Daphne didn't seem happy, 
They also noticed that her mother, Catherine, appeared intimidated by her daughter's behavior and embarrassed at her inability to control her daughter's bullying of her parents. The Sunday school teacher who conducted classes on the West End College at Church attended by Daphne found her provocative manner and total disregard for the consequences of using bad language concerning, but they too did all they could to help the troubled youngster. When Daphne was 12 years old, she turned her hand to basketball and gained a reputation for being a talented player. But again, her teammates found her unapproachable and abrasive. As she got older, Daphne certainly didn't look like the typical polished teenage girl who lived on Central Park West. Those who knew her said she never behaved in a way that conveyed her privileged background by bragging about her possessions, where she went to school, or on vacation, but the one thing she always had on hand was cash. Daphne flashed what felt like a permanent stack of 10s, 20s, and sometimes $100 bills to impress those she encountered. In addition to receiving a substantial allowance, friends suspected that Daphne was dealing drugs. She'd also started stealing, despite having access to more than enough money to buy whatever she wanted. She quickly became the go-to girl for purchasing all manner of things for her friends and acquaintances, alcohol in particular. In the late 90s, when most people had pagers and used payphones to communicate, Daphne had both a pager and a cell phone. Like many teenage girls, Daphne was self-conscious about her weight. At 5 feet 5 inches and 150 pounds, she was considered short and heavyset. As a young teenager, Daphne attended a weight loss camp on several occasions, but it's not clear at whose insistence. She lost the weight, but eventually regained it. Her mother tried to reassure Daphne that she was fine the way she was, but having a glamorous former model for a mother didn't help matters when it came to Daphne's poor body image and low self-esteem. Much to her parents' disappointment, as she got older, Daphne refused to wear bathing suits or feminine clothing, such as dresses. She had no time to hang out with girls and preferred to socialize with boys. Not necessarily from a romantic or sexual perspective, but because she felt this helped her cultivate a tough image that would intimidate others. Daphne embraced the fashion of hip-hop culture, dressing in baggy pants, flannel shirts, hoodies, and boots. She kept her hair in a short bob style and didn't wear makeup. In 1996, 15-year-old Daphne was eventually asked to leave Columbia Prep due to her disruptive behavior. She enrolled as a freshman at Loyola High School, a Jesuit-run school on the Upper East Side with a focus on high standard of academic achievement. At school, Daphne was described by her peers as sometimes showing a kind and warm side. She'd cover her classmates' cab fares, alcohol, and on one occasion took a group of classmates to Times Square to purchase fake IDs. But she could also be temperamental and obnoxious, which some interpreted as an indicator of insecurity and a need for attention. Fellow students noticed her showing up at school out of uniform, under the influence of alcohol and other drugs. One friend recounted a story where Daphne took so many qualudes at a school one day that she passed out in class and lost control of her bladder. On another occasion, at Carl Schurz Park on the east side, Daphne was so drunk she pulled down her pants and urinated on the sidewalk. Daphne's parents were so concerned about their daughter spiraling out of control, they engaged in the services of counselors and tutors, but nothing seemed to work. Compounding Daphne's defiant and disrespectful behavior was her growing dependence on alcohol. She was said to become violent when drunk. Daphne was also said to brag about many things, such as doing drugs, hanging out with drug dealers, and physically fighting people. 
Most people she encountered had no trouble believing that any sort of confrontation with Daphne would be frightening, giving her obnoxious and combative demeanor. As she got older and her behavior more uncontrollable, she was often overheard making death threats and telling people she'd assaulted others with a knife. Those around her generally dismissed her claims of fisticuffs and threats of violence as those of an overly arrogant, attention-seeking teenager. The only respite for Angelo and Catherine from their daughter's antisocial behavior was when she left the apartment to indulge her love of rollerblading in Central Park. But it was a double-edged sword. Well, Daphne's parents could only hope she wasn't accidentally injured or met with foul play during her skating around the park. At least it offered them a break from her volatile behavior at home. After dark, Daphne swapped rollerblading to meet up in the park with an older group of adults who regularly gathered to hang out, drink, and shoot the breeze. Most of the young people Daphne socialized with had various curfews, and some were permitted to stay out until the park closed at 1am. Catherine and Angelo eventually gave up trying to enforce a curfew for their disobedient daughter, and at their wit's end, on occasion resorted to calling the police to report Daphne missing when she failed to return home. Daphne continued to regularly consume large amounts of alcohol. By the age of 15, she had a juvenile record and was attending AA meetings, but this didn't seem to help as she was disinterested in engaging with her AA sponsor and continued to drink undeterred. Daphne's alcohol dependency became so problematic that in 1997, her school informed Angelo and Catherine about the severity of the situation. In March, Daphne's parents withdrew her from school and had her admitted to an alcohol rehabilitation program in Westchester. By this stage, Daphne had been drinking for several years, but had managed to conceal it from her parents. Daphne shrugged off her alcohol dependency being revealed to her parents and that she had a problem. She returned from rehab after several weeks, agreeing to attend AA meetings at the 63rd Street YMCA near Central Park. She briefly returned to school, but when her parents found out she failed to attend the meetings, Daphne was once again withdrawn from school while her parents attempted to find her a placement in yet another rehab program. In early 1997, Daphne began expressing her desire to trace her birth parents. Catherine and Angelo supported this, but they had an ulterior motive. Besides the potential benefits to Daphne's emotional and psychological well-being by discovering her past, the Abdellas were interested to uncover a possible genetic precursor to her drinking and antisocial behavior. But the problems worsened when in early May, Daphne was asked to leave school permanently. In desperation, Angelo and Catherine started researching boarding schools. On the night of May 12th, things escalated in the Abdella household. Daphne came home late, well past curfew as usual. During a verbal confrontation with her father about her disobedience, Daphne grabbed him by the neck and slapped him. Angelo decided he'd had enough of her uncontrollable behavior. He took out a restraining order against his daughter. But strangely, they continued to live in the same apartment. The atmosphere in the Abdella home was permeated by fear and uncertainty. No one knew when Daphne would have her next violent outburst what would precipitate it. It was around this time when Daphne made a new friend. One day, while watching a fight between two teenagers in Central Park, Daphne met 15-year-old Christopher Vasquez. Part 4. The Loner As we take a moment's pause in the middle of our exploration of the dark corners of humanity, let's explore a different kind of mystery, one that takes you back to the roaring 1920s with June's journey. 
In this hidden object game, you slip into the role of June Parker, tasked with unraveling the murder mystery of her sister. Each scene is meticulously designed, filled with hidden clues that lead you deeper into a storyline, riddled with danger, romance, and scandalous family secrets. I've personally ventured through the ornate parlors of New York to the charming streets of Paris within this game, each chapter peeling back layers of a complex narrative that's as engaging as it is visually stunning. Beyond just solving mysteries, June's journey invites you to escape into an era of opulence as you build and customize your very own estate island. It's the perfect blend of challenge and relaxation that I find incredibly refreshing especially after delving into the often intense themes of our podcast. For those of you who thrive on solving puzzles and uncovering stories, June's Journey offers a chance to channel your inner detective. Discover your inner detective when you download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. Step into June's shoes and help her solve the ultimate mystery. Can you uncover the truth behind her sister's tragic demise? Now. Let's dive back into our own mysterious journey here on Obscura. Stay tuned and keep your wits about you. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. As we navigate the complex narratives of true crime, it's clear that life's stressors, both big and small, can accumulate, affecting our daily lives and mental health. It's important to have a space to voice these concerns, to unravel the personal mysteries we carry within us, Therapy offers a safe space to do just that. It's not only for moments of crisis, but for anyone aiming to foster better coping skills, set healthy boundaries, and ultimately, thrive. BetterHelp facilitates this by providing online therapy that's tailored to your schedule, making it both convenient and flexible. With BetterHelp, starting therapy is straightforward. Fill out a brief questionnaire and get matched with a licensed therapist. If you find your needs aren't being met, you can switch therapist at any time without any additional charges, ensuring you find the right fit for your journey. If you've been considering therapy or curious about how it can help, give BetterHelp a try. Take a moment. Visit BetterHelp.com Obscura today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp. H-E-L-P dot com slash Obscura. Take a moment to support your mental health. Why are so many dogs suffering from health issues? Actress Catherine Eagle, who's helped save over 16,000 dogs through her foundation, says she's seeing more issues with dog joints, odors, and health than ever before. And after doing a ton of research, she feels there's one place we can look to improve any dog's health. Their food. What she's discovered is that the way many dog foods are made can actually create toxins that could be wrecking our dog's health. And this is true even for many premium brands. Fortunately, she found that just by adding a few special superfoods to her dog's food, she saw huge transformations in their health. She's made a 20-minute video explaining step-by-step how anyone can do the same thing to see incredible changes in their dog's health. Listener, I've watched this video, and honestly, it's 20 minutes well spent. The health of my animals means everything to me. This stuff has improved the coats and energy of mine, and they love it. Normally they are picky with food, but they really enjoy this stuff. 
Go to badlandsfood.com slash obscura and watch Catherine's video right now. Again, that's B-A-D-L-A-N-D-S-F-O-O-D.com slash obscura. Christopher also attended a private school, but his family and home life were far removed from that of Daphne's. Christopher's working-class parents were childhood sweethearts who grew up around the corner from each other. His mother, Patricia, had also lived on East 97th Street, and his father, Gerardo, on East 98th Street. Soon after the couple married, the Vasquez's had a daughter, Jennifer, followed by Christopher, who was born on January 1, 1982. Gerardo worked various jobs over the years, including as a doorman and in a carpet store, while Patricia was a secretary at the Regis School. Patricia's parents lived across the hall from the Vasquez family. Christopher's grandparents attended St. Francis de Sales Catholic Church, and Christopher occasionally took the shore walk with them to Mass. In 1992, at age 10, he volunteered to be an altar boy, but his heart wasn't really in it, and the parish priest noted that over the next couple of years, Christopher only showed up intermittently. Christopher attended elementary school at St. Ignatius Loyola Grammar School, but spent most of his childhood at home after being diagnosed with agoraphobia when he was nine. Agoraphobia is an anxiety disorder that gives a person a fear of being in public spaces, including schools. Quiet and introverted, Christopher was polite and well-mannered, but kept to himself. He was also what some would describe as nerdy and awkward-looking, with glasses, unfashionable clothes, few friends, and emotionally vulnerable disposition. Christopher did not go on an exotic overseas vacation with his family. In fact, he never really ventured very far from his fifth-floor walk up the apartment on East 97th Street between Park and Madison Avenues on Manhattan's Upper East Side. Christopher's mental health suffered a significant blow when in 1995 his parents separated and his father moved out. Friends reported that around this time, a devastated Christopher found refuge in the bottom of the bottle when he started to drink alcohol. Christopher continued to take prescription psychotropic medication to treat his anxiety and clinical depression. He was a capable student, but due to his fears, it was difficult for him to attend school. He was homeschooled for two years. In early 1997, his mother, Patricia, enrolled him in the Beekman School, a smaller private school in East Midtown catering to students struggling with emotional issues. To start out, Christopher only took history, science, and English attending school for only two and a half hours per day. Outside of school, Christopher enjoyed rollerblading and playing roller hockey. While he had a few friends, he didn't socialize much outside of school, preferring to go straight home to the safety of the family apartment. Soon after commencing at Beekman, Christopher felt the need to prove himself as someone who couldn't be pushed around. He'd become known as Herb, a slang insult describing someone as simple and easily manipulated. Christopher joined a group of young people from various private schools, which some described as a gang, called the East Coast Vandalists, or ECV for short. One member later claimed the acronym stood for Encouraging Child Violence. This was just one of several groups of young people banding together in New York City at the time. The fashion, culture, and aesthetic of rap and hip-hop music resonated with teenagers at the time, especially those seeking the protection of a group where they could intimidate others they felt threatened their safety. The gang Christopher joined wasn't into violent crime, but more interested in graffiti and throwing their weight around in the local neighborhood. However, 
Some people started reporting that the ECV would threaten and rob children from the neighborhood housing projects. Christopher was initially said to avoid physical confrontation, but soon after joining ECV, those around him noticed changes in his personality. He stopped attending school and once punched someone in the face at a party, unprovoked. In mid-April 1997, one of Christopher's friends noticed he returned to school after a three-day absence with a black eye. When asked what happened, Christopher told his friend that he'd been jumped a few days earlier by some teenagers on the subway. They'd beaten him up and stolen his money. Christopher appealed to the ECV gang to retaliate against the kids who'd mugged him, but instead, the leader of ECV told Chris in no uncertain terms that he wasn't part of their group and shouldn't be telling people he was associated with them. The sting of the rejection deeply wounded Christopher, who was reported to be so upset he started crying and punched the newspaper box on the street until it caved in and his hand was bleeding. Just when Christopher finally felt he was fitting in with his peers, they didn't want anything to do with him. He started drinking more and hanging out on the FDR overpass. But then, Christopher met Daphne. The pair quickly bonded over their love of rollerblading, which they took to doing every day in Central Park close to where they each lived. Christopher was captivated by Daphne's take-no-prisoners attitude towards getting what she wanted and her refusal to play by the rules. Nothing scared her. She was fearless. Daphne seemed to enjoy spending time with Christopher. Getting outdoors with a rollerblading buddy of her own age was the healthy interest, but she quickly realized that her new friend's vulnerability could be easily manipulated. The attention she heaped upon Christopher made him feel special, and he soon developed a crush on this girl who was so different to all the others he'd met up until then. The introverted and awkward former altar boy was smitten, but Daphne's cruel streak often shone through when it came to her treatment of Christopher, who she knew hoped they could become more than friends. Daphne exploited Christopher's romantic feelings for her to her full advantage, flirting with him and leading him on even though she had no intention of reciprocating his affection. In the grip of this manipulation, Christopher became Daphne's shadow, started to stay out late in the evenings if it meant he could stay by her side. At night, Daphne and Christopher would go to Central Park to rollerblade, smoke cigarettes, and hang out with other drinkers. Christopher was said to experiment with other drugs. People they encountered during this time often described Daphne and Christopher as competitive. Worryingly, Rather than the mild-mannered Christopher having a placating effect on Daphne, though she knew, noticed that her lightning-quick temper appeared to be worsening. Others noticed her influence over Christopher as well. Christopher's mother was often frantic when he failed to return home after curfew, incessantly paging her son after nightfall, but receiving no response. Christopher's other friends expressed concern about the new friendship and tried to discourage him from hanging out with Daphne. Just prior to May 1997, Christopher proudly showed some friends the four-inch-long folding knife he'd acquired for himself, following the mugging on the subway. He told them, No, I really like her. I like how she acts freely. If she wants to do something, she does it. That Daphne is crazy. She can fight, man. She's crazy. Friends were also noticing a change in Christopher's demeanor. He often seemed to have a blank look on his face that some also described as crazy. Part 5. The Lake The morning of May 22, 1997, Daphne dressed in her trademark baggy jeans and t-shirt. 
She made her way to Central Park, where she happened upon a group of male drinkers she shared some beer with. By mid-afternoon, she decided to make her way over to the east side of Manhattan. On the way there, Daphne ran into some older male acquaintances on Madison Avenue and asked them to buy her some alcohol and cigarette papers. Having procured her own supplies, at 4pm she arrived at Carl Schertz Park in Yorkville, next to the East River. This park was another one of Daphne's regular haunts, and she was easily recognizable to those who also frequented the park. But no one there that day recalled having seen Christopher there previously. He turned up to the park that afternoon, around the same time, after finishing school and going home to change. Daphne liked to engage with other teenagers in slapboxing, which is a reflex test where opponents take swings at each other to see who can connect with their open hands. That afternoon, Daphne started slapboxing with a 16-year-old boy, but she was no match for his muscular build. When the boys stopped the fight, Daphne insisted they continue, swearing at him when he refused. Others present at the park recalled Daphne then shouting to a teenage girl, Hey, what school do you go to? The girl responded, What do you care? The verbal altercation soon degenerated into two girls trading insults and swearing at each other. The girl's father, who was playing chess nearby, asked Daphne, You looking for trouble? Most teenagers would back off after being scolded by an adult, but Daphne had no such regard for being admonished by anyone, let alone someone she didn't know. She approached the man and, putting her face inches from his, challenged him with a menacing threat. We are trouble. Daphne was fuming. First, she couldn't find anyone to slap box with. And now, some old guy had publicly tried to put her in her place. No one would humiliate her like that. She returned to a group of friends who had since gathered and tried to persuade them to gang up on the man she had just verbally abused. Christopher and Daphne's friends told her to relax and leave it alone. By now, Daphne's speech was noticeably slurred. No one present that afternoon had seen Christopher drinking alcohol, but Daphne's friends noticed he began to brag about his own prowess as a fighter. Daphne attempted to make out with a couple of boys she knew at the park, but her romantic advances were rebuffed. Daphne's foul mood worsened. Three male friends heard her say, Before this day is over, I'm going to kill someone. No one believed her, though. By this time, she was wasted, and it just sounded like one of the many idle empty threats she regularly made when she'd been drinking. They assumed she'd calm down soon enough, like she had plenty of times before. At one point, Daphne left Christopher on his own and went to share a beer with some of the other drinkers in the park. But Daphne wasn't being benevolent. She was looking for a fight. Further information about the casual acquaintances who saw Daphne in Carl Schurz Park that day can be found in the book Baby-Faced Butchers by author Stella Sands. At around 7 p.m., Daphne and Christopher left the park to go to Daphne's apartment. On their way, they stopped by a video store on 68th Street and rented a violent rated R Quentin Tarantino film, Reservoir Dogs. The video store clerk suspected something was a little off with the teenagers and asked Daphne, Have you been drinking? To which she retorted, Why, have you? Daphne and Christopher continued to the apartment but changed their minds about watching the movie. Instead, just before 10 p.m., they strapped on their rollerblades and headed to Central Park, taking their knives with them. They found their way to Strawberry Fields, where two groups of park regulars had gathered. 
So I'm drinking beer. One older group of A-regulars was sitting on the grass about 140 yards from 72nd Street Transverse, listening to rock and roll tunes on a radio. The other group consisting of 6-10 to 10 teenage rollerbladers was gathered, just to the north. Daphne and Christopher rolled through strawberry fields on their skates. They didn't appear intoxicated, but Daphne made her presence known, loudly interrupting conversations in both groups by introducing herself and Christopher and asking with an intimidating air if anyone had any acid or pot. No one had, at least not for these kids who seemed like bad news. By now, it was 10 p.m., and as harder drugs weren't forthcoming from anyone in the park, Daphne announced, Fine, I'll get us some beer. She instructed Christopher to stay and wait while she rollerbladed to a nearby convenience store on West 72nd Street. As Daphne skated out of the park, she ran into a police officer and fell, hitting her head on the sidewalk. She insisted she was fine and continued on her way. When Christopher got impatient that Daphne hadn't returned, he skated off and found her at the convenience store, being aggressive with other male customers and challenging them to a fight. The pair eventually returned to the park with four six-packs of Heineken, which, in a rare act of generosity, Daphne distributed amongst each group. Daphne recognized a man in one of the groups as someone she'd met a few weeks previously when she was in the park smoking marijuana with some friends. The man, who she later said appeared to be drunk at the time, had approached the group. Daphne then realized that she and the man had attended rehab in Westchester together, introducing herself as Daphne from rehab. She didn't know his real name, but knew he went by the nickname Irish. It was Michael McMurrow who, after finishing work earlier that afternoon, had arrived at the park around 6pm that evening with some cans of Guinness to hang out and chat with other regulars. When Daphne and Christopher arrived at Strawberry Fields, Michael was telling a story to a group of people sitting around in a circle. Around 11.30pm, police came into Strawberry Fields and ordered the groups to move on. Despite the park not due to close for another 90 minutes, the drinkers dispersed in different directions but Daphne and Christopher weren't ready to go home. They sensed that Michael wasn't either. Daphne asked Michael if he wanted to join them for another beer, and he agreed. Michael left his other friends with a promise he'd catch them tomorrow. Witnesses last saw Michael, Christopher, and Daphne heading north toward a path that led toward the gazebo near the southwest edge of the lake. Upon arriving at the gazebo, Daphne handed Michael a beer from her stash of Heineken and Guinness. But things soon turned ugly. Listener, the precise sequence of events of what happened next may never be known. The accuracy of various accounts differ, and like everything, the truth is most likely somewhere in the middle. It's not clear whether Daphne kissed Michael, sending Christopher into a rage. What is clear is that Christopher suddenly turned on Michael, lashing out and stabbing the older man in a frenzy. Michael did his best to fight the skinny teenager off, but was struck on the arm and shoulder by Daphne's arm. Michael managed to knock Daphne down, but she kicked him twice in the leg. Still lying on the ground, Daphne swept Michael's feet out from under him with her rollerblades, causing him to fall backwards onto the ground. Christopher jumped on top of Michael, who was pleading for his life. Christopher continued to slash indiscriminately at Michael, stabbing him repeatedly in the arms, neck, back, and chest. Daphne told Christopher to slice him from ear to ear. Christopher did so.
teenager stole the money in Michael's wallet, and in an attempt to conceal his identity, they tried to burn his identification card and sever his hands. With Michael's lifeless body lying on the ground, Daphne said, Chris, you'd better gut him so he'll sink because he's a fatty. Before the teenagers heaved Michael's body into the lake, Christopher disemboweled him and filled his abdominal cavity with stones and garbage. Around 12.30 a.m., a patrol officer situated on Central Park West heard male screams coming from the direction of the lake. The officer took a drive into the park but didn't see anything out of the ordinary. Not long after, he saw two teenagers rollerblading out of the park, no doubt well past their curfew, he thought. Nothing else about the scene appeared suspicious. Following the slaying, Daphne and Christopher returned to the Majestic where they washed up in the building's basement utility room. It was now just before 1 a.m., and as Daphne hadn't returned home, her father Angelo called the police to report his daughter missing. Police arrived and met Angelo in the lobby of the building, where the doorman told them he'd seen Daphne and Christopher head to the utility room. When police found the teenagers, they were both sitting naked in the utility room bathtub washing blood off themselves. Daphne was irate that her father had reported her missing. She told the police that she and Christopher had fallen over while rollerblading and injured themselves, resulting in their bloody clothes. The police, unaware of the atrocity committed less than an hour before, bought the explanation. They told the pair to get dressed, escorted them upstairs to the Abdella apartment, and then left. Angelo called a panicked Patricia Vasquez who had been paging her son all evening. Patricia arrived at the Majestic at 1.30am to collect her son, who went home wearing fresh clothes she'd borrowed from Daphne. Daphne threw the clothes both she and Christopher had been wearing that day in the washer. At 1.42am, she made an anonymous call to 911, telling the operator, My friend jumped in the lake and didn't come out. Go have your boys check out Central Park and drain the river. You'll find a body. You can't miss it. I don't know what it was. I saw it was a body, freaked out and left. I saw that fucker floating and I was like, what? The operator managed to get Daphne to provide her name and address before she hung up, and the column was traced to the apartment. Hungry, Daphne made herself some mac and cheese, which she was eating in her pajamas when the police arrived. Angelo instructed Daphne to say nothing without a lawyer present, but, true to form, Daphne ignored her father. She matter-of-factly told the police she just witnessed a murder. Daphne was suddenly energized and suggested she take police to where the body was, but made sure to mention that her friend Christopher cut him up and gutted the body. During their visit to the Abdella home, police noticed there was blood on Daphne's watch and on the floor of her bedroom. She happily showed them where both her and Christopher's clothes were drying, even though she told them, I don't know why I'm helping you. I hate cops. I didn't do anything wrong. When police escorted Daphne to the lake in the company of her father, they find Michael McMurrow floating face up in the water, 40 inches of his intestines removed and floating nearby. Daphne became hysterical, crying and yelling to the lifeless man, I tried to help you. I tried to give you CPR. But it was clear from the grim scene that greeted police that CPR would have been futile. Daphne told police where Christopher lived and accompanied them to his apartment. As more investigators arrived at the park and police helicopters circled overhead, both teenagers were taken into custody. 
At the crime scene, police found fresh blood droplets on the ground that led up to the path away from the gazebo near the lake. Investigators set to work drilling these sections of asphalt out of the ground, which would later provide 47 blood samples for forensic analysis. When Michael's body was finally pulled from the murky water, an attending officer stated that it was impossible to tell which wounds contributed to Michael's death and which ones were inflicted post-mortem. He was stabbed 34 times, including six stab wounds to the heart, seven to the face, and three to the neck. Both of Michael's eyelids, his throat, forehead, and cheeks were slashed. One hand was almost severed. His left jugular, vein, heart, aorta, and left lung were perforated. The force of the blows from the knife broke and almost severed his nose. His left collarbone, sternum, and two ribs were broken. His abdomen alone had sustained 17 stab wounds. Later that night, Daphne admitted to drinking heavily before the murder, but claimed that Christopher had the knife and she was scared he was going to kill her. She said she thought Christopher stabbed Michael out of jealousy, because when the trio arrived at the lake, Christopher saw Michael put his arm around Daphne. Chris kind of asked me to be his girlfriend and I kind of said yes. Chris might have been jealous. That might have started it all. Chris is my boyfriend. Daphne stated that Christopher, who had taken LSD early in the evening, flipped out and began stabbing Michael in a frenzied attack. Michael's autopsy, which noted contusions of Michael's right thigh, supported Daphne's claim that she kicked Michael's legs out from under him while wearing rollerblades. Michael's blood alcohol level was 0.31, three times the legal limit. Michael had no defensive wounds and none of Christopher's DNA was recovered from Michael's fingernails. There was no water in his lungs, indicating he had died before he was pushed into the lake. When it came to the multiple fatal stab wounds, the autopsy also revealed Michael died from the wounds consistent with a knife later found in Christopher's apartment. The knife was identified as one that Christopher's grandmother had purchased in 1995 as camping equipment. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. On May 27th, Michael's funeral service was attended by his heartbroken family and friends. During the eulogy, Michael's nephew, Matthew, said his uncle loved and cared about all people. He understood the real meaning of humanity. He had this way of making people feel comfortable and relaxed. He knew he wasn't judging anyone, but simply trying to enjoy them. Upon hearing the news of Michael's death, his friends from Central Park created a makeshift shrine near the Imagine Mosaic in Strawberry Fields, dedicated to the memory of the kind man they knew with a great sense of humor. Part 6 He Said, She Said The day after the arrest, police recovered bloodstained socks, jeans, a shirt, rollerblades, and several knives from Christopher's bedroom. None of Michael's DNA was recovered from Christopher's fingernails. 
At her arraignment on May 24th, Daphne was ordered to be held without bail. During Christopher's arraignment, he was overheard making suicidal comments, so his arraignment was postponed pending psychiatric evaluation at Bellevue Hospital. Christopher's statements in these evaluations would later be sealed, only to be made public if his lawyer chose to adopt a psychiatric defense. Prosecutors prepared to ask a grand jury for murder indictments against Daphne and Christopher. The grand jury had difficulty figuring out who stabbed Michael and who didn't. Witness statements about the teenagers indicated that while some people weren't surprised that Daphne's threat had been carried out, people like Christopher's parents were shocked that their son was accused of perpetrating such a violent crime. When formal charges were pressed, both teenagers were accused of murder in the second degree and first degree robbery. Because they were both under the age of 18, they would be tried as adults, but sentenced as juveniles. Daphne, who was represented by Benjamin Braffman, who later went on to defend Michael Jackson against sexual molestation charges, was crying softly. Christopher was quiet. Both pleaded not guilty to the murder charge. Daphne and Christopher continued to blame each other, refusing to take any responsibility, with both of their lawyers maintaining their innocence. Christopher's lawyers did not comment on the case, aside from indicating a possible defense based on the combination of medication and alcohol affecting Christopher's judgment. Daphne's lawyer adopted a different strategy and was adamant that Christopher was solely responsible. Given the conflicting evidence from both teenagers, the Manhattan District Attorney Office was skeptical that a jury would convict the pair on charges of second-degree murder. As a consequence, both teenagers were charged with a Class B felony of manslaughter. In the state of New York, a person is guilty of manslaughter in the first degree when, with intent to cause serious physical injury to another person, he causes the death of such person. In order for Daphne to be found guilty of manslaughter, the prosecution had to prove that she participated in Michael's death and intentionally aided Christopher in causing Michael's death, with intent to cause him serious physical injury. The prosecution and defense were preparing their cases when, in September 1997, Daphne admitted that she was involved in the attack as more than an eyewitness. Despite not having any injuries on her following the murder, Part of the evidence against Daphne was that Michael's blood was found on her rollerblades. It was noted that none of Michael's blood was found on Christopher's rollerblades. Prosecutors appeared to shift their position on the issue of Daphne's testimony as her trial date drew nearer. Judge Michael Carrero ruled the prosecutors could introduce the evidence portions of Daphne's statement, where she blamed Christopher. But the judge also allowed Christopher's lawyer to introduce other material that called Daphne's credibility into question. In February 1998, the prosecution offered Daphne a plea bargain for first-degree manslaughter on the condition that she received the maximum juvenile sentence for the crime of three years and four months to ten years. In addition to crime scene evidence that corroborated Daphne's account, the plea bargain took into consideration Christopher's account of events. The following month, Daphne pleaded guilty to first-degree manslaughter. As part of her plea, she was not required to testify against Christopher at his trial nor was she required to admit that she helped push Michael into the lake after he was killed. Daphne admitted to knocking Michael's feet out from under him while Christopher attacked him with a knife, but that she did not intend to kill Michael. Speaking to the court, Daphne apologized and expressed remorse, stating that Michael's death was unintentional. Jurors were critical of the plea deal. Following Daphne's plea hearing, Michael's sister Joan told the Daily News, Nothing will bring Michael back. Daphne admitted that nothing Michael did that night brought it on. That's important because Michael was such a nonviolent person. We were glad she admitted to what happened that night. 
We appreciated the apology. My mother will miss him very, very much and will never get over him. Nothing can heal our heartache. Daphne was sentenced a month later, on April 2nd, 1998. Michael's sister Anne appeared in court to give a victim impact statement on behalf of the McMorrow family. It is beyond our comprehension how anyone can participate in such a cruel and unconscionable act of violence. The uncivilized disrespect for human life demonstrated by Miss Abdella warrants the maximum punishment allowed by law for the crime for which she is convicted. Before being sentenced, Daphne told the court, There is no one to blame for this tragedy. There is no scapegoats on whom I can pass the blame for being in the wrong place at the wrong time. I cannot say that I will never drink again because I do not know that it is guaranteed. I can never say in a million words how sorry I am that this occurred and how much I wish I could have prevented any of this from happening. I'm sorry, and I hope you can find it in yourselves to forgive me. Daphne went on to speak about how the media had misrepresented her. Michael's family was aghast, and the judge was unimpressed at Daphne's refusal to accept responsibility. Finally, the judge addressed the McMorrow family. There's absolutely nothing I can do to bring Michael back. Please accept that I have tried to take into consideration your hurt and your concern. The ultimate resolution of this case is an imperfect one does not meet or can never fill the void that's in your life. But, I can assure you that it was arrived at after careful consideration. Please, accept my condolences in this regard. He then spoke to Daphne. You participated in the loss of a life. It's apparent to me that you have a grasp of the enormity of what you did. But you owe your parents a responsibility, an obligation... It is my hope that you will find meaning in a life dedicated to making up for participating in the loss of another life. Daphne was sentenced to the maximum term of three and one-third to ten years in prison. Following sentencing, Michael McMorrow's sister, Anne, said, How terribly unfair that Michael should have lost his life in a place he loved so much. No one in our family will ever live a normal life again, particularly not our mother. She cannot believe that she will never see Michael come home again. No such plea deal would be offered to Christopher by the DA's office. The case against him was strong. None of Daphne's blood was found at the crime scene or on any clothing that was seized by police following the teenager's arrest. However, Christopher's DNA was present in 100% of the blood samples taken from the crime scene. Following his arrest, he was observed to have numerous injuries which the state medical examiner testified was consistent with Christopher having cut himself during a violent struggle including nine knife wounds to his hand and wrists. In addition, the folding knife recovered from Christopher's bedroom contained traces of both Michael and Christopher's DNA, but none from Daphne. It was also reported that during Christopher's previous evaluations with psychiatrists and psychologists at the time of his arraignment, he confessed to the killing, giving an account consistent with Daphne's, which the prosecution accepted. In November 1997, Christopher's lawyer indicated the intention to defend the second-degree murder charge on the basis of extreme emotional disturbance. Christopher's lawyer warned that Christopher's sealed statements and state of mind during the psychiatric evaluation should be considered in context, saying, The science in this case didn't support the statement. However, that same month, Christopher's lawyer decided to change strategy. He now argued that Daphne was solely responsible for Michael's death that Christopher was an innocent bystander in the whole sorry mess. The prosecution hit back, criticizing Christopher's lawyer for abandoning the psychiatric defense at the 11th hour. 
This meant that the statements Christopher originally gave to psychiatrists would remain sealed. The same statements that were reported to contain Christopher's confession that he killed Michael. The assistant DA met with Daphne in prison during the summer of 1998 to persuade her to voluntarily testify at Christopher's trial and to blame him for the murder. Christopher's lawyer opposed this request, stating that no evidence from Daphne should be allowed without the defense being allowed to cross-examine her. In the end, Daphne invoked her Fifth Amendment privilege against self-incrimination. When his trial commenced on November 9, 1998, Christopher's lawyer asserted that the alleged abrupt attack on Michael was not consistent with Christopher's general demeanor, who witnesses described as shy and passive. The defense cited witness evidence that Daphne tried to pick fights with several people earlier on in the night before the teenagers crossed paths with Michael. Christopher's lawyer also pointed out that Daphne had blood on her rollerblades as evidence that she carried out the killing, while Christopher did not. The defense then referred to a voicemail message Daphne later left on a friend's answering machine, where she admitted to greater responsibility for Michael's death than she had originally led investigators to believe. It was also noted that at no stage were scrapings taken from underneath Daphne's fingernails. With closing arguments concluded, the judge instructed the jury before retiring that if they found Christopher not guilty of second-degree murder, they were to consider whether he was guilty of first-degree manslaughter. After two and a half days of deliberation, on December 4, 1998, Christopher was found guilty of manslaughter, but acquitted on murder in the second degree. The jury determined that Christopher helped stabbed and disembowel Michael, but could not agree on which teenager was the prime instigator. Four jurors wept as the verdict was read out. A juror later said that most of the panel felt that Daphne killed Michael based on the combination of the physical evidence and testimony about her actions prior to the killing. The jurors said that an outright acquittal of Christopher was debated at length during extremely emotional, extremely painful deliberations. The juror, who said the panel felt great sympathy for Michael's family, called the decision to allow Daphne to enter a plea without testifying at a trial wrong and offensive. The jury was also upset at the light sentences both teenagers would receive. One juror saying, Someone walked away without being convicted of murder. The jury had the opportunity to try Christopher and acquitted him. The jury did not have the opportunity to try Daphne Abdella. Another juror also said that Daphne's failure to testify presented one of the most difficult problems the jury faced, leading them to convict Christopher of the lesser charge. One of the biggest problems was that Daphne was not available. There was nothing to guide us through it. We just felt we couldn't be sure what happened and were not 100% positive he committed murder. Jurors were also critical when they discovered, after the fact, that the prosecution was not in agreement with the judge's instruction for the jury to consider the manslaughter charge during deliberation. Following the trial, Christopher's lawyer was critical of the prosecution for commenting on Christopher's sealed psychiatric statements. He said he wished he had the opportunity to cross-examine Daphne on the stand, and proved that the account of the killing she and law enforcement officials put forward was incorrect. He also blamed prosecutors for not requiring Daphne to testify. After the verdict was announced, Michael's family expressed their outrage and disbelief that, in their view, Christopher had escaped justice. Michael McMurrow's nephew, Matthew, told the media, There is no doubt in our mind that Christopher Vasquez killed Michael in cold blood. All the evidence points to him. How anyone could confuse 34 stab wounds with manslaughter is beyond our comprehension. What happened today is not justice. It is a disgrace to the American judicial system. 
Michael's siblings, Charles and Joan, also weighed in. The jury didn't have the guts to make the tough decision. They took the easy way out to just go home and go to sleep. My mother and sister are taking it very hard. I think all the evidence point to the fact that he did the actual stabbing. We now are forced to wonder why our justice system works the way it does. And whose punishment is more severe, that of the killers or the victims and their families? Christopher's relatives, while expressing sympathy for McMorrow's family, raised the verdict. Christopher's uncle maintained that his nephew did not carry out the killings and thanked the jury. They did their best, but I also want to say that I believe Christopher is totally innocent. They did the right thing. On the day of sentencing, January 25, 1999, Michael's family again provided emotional victim impact statements. His younger sister, Joan, told the court, The images of Michael's sheer terror and pain before he died have filled our thoughts for many sleepless nights. The thought of Michael being tortured and mutilated in his final moments will haunt us for the rest of our lives. Christopher gave a brief statement, quietly telling the court he was not a bad person, that he was sorry for Michael's family. The judge remained unimpressed. In sentencing Christopher, the judge said, You inflicted the wounds that killed Michael McMurrow. I gave you every opportunity to explain to me where it came from. Why did it happen? What pushed you to do this? I don't have that. The jury didn't have it. No one has it. And Daphne Abdella has refused to tell us more of it. The only sentence I'm left with is one that takes your youth away from you. Christopher was sentenced to three and one-third to ten years in prison, with the 18 months Christopher had already spent behind bars awaiting trial to be applied to his sentence. In December 1998, McMorrow family filed a $150 million wrongful death suit against Daphne and Christopher, seeking compensatory and punitive damages. The suit would prevent Daphne and Christopher from ever profiting from any films or books about their crime. Christopher's family defaulted on this suit in 1999, but Daphne and her father agreed to settle in March 2002, with the McMorrow family receiving $60,000. During their incarceration, the teenagers were denied parole twice. In Daphne's case, this was due to ongoing behavioral issues and a total disregard for human life. Despite this, while in prison, Daphne scored well on her high school equivalency diploma and took college courses studying for a degree in social and behavioral science. During his time in prison, Christopher successfully completed an alcohol abuse program and also obtained his high school equivalency diploma. In 2002, Christopher appealed his manslaughter conviction. In January 2004, Christopher and Daphne were released within five days of each other, having only served six years each of their sentences. The terms of their release was that they were subject to a curfew, were not to leave the five boroughs, nor were they to have contact with each other. They were not permitted to consume alcohol and would be subjected to regular substance abuse tests. Upon their release, Michael's sisters Joan told the media that the McMorrow family wasn't notified of any prior parole hearings for either Daphne or Christopher, finding out about the pair's release via the media. A devastated Joan said, I just get sick over it. The first time I knew about her getting out was from the New York Post. I don't know how I'm going to tell my mother of this release. She goes from time to time to visit the park bench where Mike was murdered and where he has a plaque on the bench. Obviously, she and our family will never get over it. Michael's brother Charles said, Six years for what they did to my brother, and I have to relive this all over again. It's not like he was shot by a gun or hit by a bus. I had to identify the body, and it's not a day I like to think about. 
Shortly after Daphne and Christopher's release, a friend of Michael's found a frosty bouquet of flowers and a note frozen to a bench seat in Strawberry Fields. The note read, Rest easy. I tried to save you. I'm sorry. I failed you. D. Leading him to believe that Daphne left the note, Michael's friend told the media, Personally, I think she could have left that to God, not have left the note on the bench. I understand she wants to make amends, but that's not how she should have done it. Another friend of Michael's spoke to the media about Daphne and Christopher's release. I almost couldn't believe it when I read it. The family was victimized and now New Yorkers are being victimized by this. Six years is nothing. It's a travesty. Knowing they were in prison was a cold comfort, even though I knew someday they'd be out. I've lost all my trust in the system, but it's hard not to wish them well. In a sense, I'd like to believe they were rehabilitated. Daphne returned to live with her father, Angelo, in Central Park West, but she didn't stay out of trouble for long. In October 2004, she was charged with aggravated harassment after making death threats via telephone to a Brooklyn woman who had been in prison with Daphne. Daphne had originally called the woman to ask if another ex-inmate friend could stay with her. When the woman refused, Daphne told her, If you leave your house, I'm going to kill you. Daphne turned herself in regarding the offense. As a result, her 9pm curfew was shortened by two hours. In an unusual coincidence, Michael's mother Margaret passed away in February 2006, with Daphne's mother Catherine dying suddenly of cardiac arrest in September that same year. In November 2009, Daphne sued a couple over a car accident when their car collided with Daphne's in Harlem the previous April. Daphne claimed that she sustained injuries from the crash confining her to bed. Daphne and Christopher's actions continue to have lifelong impact on the McMorrow family. In an interview from 2010, Michael's nephew Matthew reflected on Daphne's involvement in his uncle's death. She didn't seem remorseful about what she'd done. And I think that to me, that was the biggest slap in the face. She has her whole life ahead of her now. My uncle does not. It's something we have to live with. And then she continues on in her life, having not really apologized. Having not really served an adequate prison sentence, in my opinion. And Michael is gone. We don't have Michael. Michael doesn't have his life. Michael's sister Anne, who passed away in 2016, described Daphne as common in every way and Christopher as brainless. She also stated that she didn't blame Daphne's parents, but instead the legal system of New York for allowing plea bargaining and such a lenient sentence for juveniles who were tried as adults for such a horrendous crime. The inscription on the plaque in Central Park Strawberry Fields that bears Michael's name also contains a quote from the poem Break, Break, Break by Alfred Lord Tennyson. Break, 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 on thy cold gray stones, O sea, and I would that my tongue could utter the thoughts that arise in me. Oh well for the fisherman's boy, that he shouts with his sister at play. Oh well for the sailor lad, that he sings in his boat on the bay, and the stately ships go on to their haven under the hill. But oh for the touch of the vanished hand, and the sound of a voice that is still. Break, break, break. At the foot of thy crags, O sea, but the tender grace of a day that is dead will never come back to me.
Listener, what do you think? Do you think the DA's office prosecuted the teenagers fairly? What are your thoughts on being tried as an adult and sentenced as a juvenile in cases involving extreme violence? Should Daphne and Christopher be left alone, having been released? Or does it make you uneasy knowing that two people who committed such a vicious act are free to get on with their lives? I'd love to know your thoughts. I think that wraps things up. Thank you for listening. And keep the fire burning. When you visit Arizona, time is measured in moments, not minutes. Like the moment you see the Grand Canyon for the first time. Visit a new state of mind. Learn more at hereyouareaz.com. Save big on your Memorial Day barbecue. All in the Kroger app. Get three pound rolls of juicy 80% lean ground beef for $3.49 a pound with a digital coupon. Then get select varieties of flavorful Powerade, Body Armor Super Drink, or Arizona tea for 77 cents each, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.